Many thanks, Susan, for that very kind and generous introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here tonight at the LSE, and I'd like to thank Susan for inviting me to come and the Law Department for hosting me. It's uh, a great pleasure to be at this institution that's such a rich location for international law and human rights law. So I wanted to start by taking you into the strange cosmos of the international human rights system. And as many of you will know, I, I took this, this, uh, this diagram from uh, a UN website. Uh, the UN human rights system comprises a complex set of institutions, treaties, declarations and practices at both the global and regional level. I'm going to focus tonight on the global level, administered primarily through the UN. So, again, I'm conscious I'm speaking to so many human rights experts here, but the, the foundation of the international human rights system is the UN Charter's commitment to promote and encourage respect for human rights and for fundamental freedoms for all without distinction as to race, sex, language or religion. Those are the words of the UN Charter in Article 1. So the system as such that I'm uh, going to be talking about is it comprises the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the proud Australian in me couldn't resist uh, putting this uh, photo of Australia's foreign minister, Doc Evatt, signing the Universal Declaration. He was uh, chair of the General Assembly when the Declaration was adopted in 1948. So it's the Universal Declaration, nine core human rights treaties, including the two general treaties, the two covenants, uh, and treaties devoted to particular human rights and groups, the Convention Against Torture, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and so on. So we can see the human rights system as such. It has, to borrow the words of Emily Hafner Burton, there's been a cascade of words setting human rights standards over the last 60 years. And the international human rights system has attracted a very impressive rate of participation. So all of the UN's 193 members are parties to at least one of the nine core treaties, and 80% uh, of the UN membership have accepted at least uh, four or more treaties. So you can see uh, the ratification rates are there. I might actually see a typo there too, apologies. Um, uh, we can see that the most widely accepted treaty there is the Convention on the Rights of the Child with 194 parties. And the two covenants, the two general covenants, have very, very uh, broad levels of acceptance too. So those are the standards. And then the human rights architecture is very complex. Uh, all of the treaties have a, the human rights treaties have a special expert treaty body uh, to implement uh, the. Uh, to oversee the implementation of the treaty provisions. And here are some members of the uh, uh, Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disability and the person on the uh, left of the screen is, this is a rather nationalistic uh, display, is the Australian, the one Australian, uh, uh, Professor Ron McCallum, who's been the uh, chair of, of, of that committee. And another committee that kindly has a photo uh, displayed there. This is a, a photo of the, uh, the 18 members of the Committee on the Rights of the Child. So we've got that whole system of the treaty bodies. Uh, the second um, 
aspect of the treaty provisions, just to going back to this, this very, very complex uh, diagram, is the Human Rights Council, which is there in the centre. Uh, the council is, of course, a state-run body. States are elected as members. It was established in 2006. And there's... Uh, we'll be coming back to the council. I'll be focusing on the council. Here's a bird's-eye view of... Uh, Salle 20 at the uh, Palais des Nations in Geneva, where the Human Rights Council meets with the wonderful uh, ceiling by the Spanish artist Miguel Barcelo. Uh, and then the, a third major element is the office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. This is, of course, Navi Pillay, the former. She, she was uh, uh, retired just earlier this year, the former High Commissioner, and the new High Commissioner, uh, Prince Aid Hussein. Uh, so uh, this office, his office is responsible for the promotion and coordination of human rights throughout the UN system. So looking at all these bodies, we can see that at one level, uh, the international human rights system is really a success story of international law. Compared to many, many other areas, such as the environment or nuclear proliferation, the development of human rights norms and institutions at the international level is really significant. And... You saw from the figures that I gave you of participation in human rights treaties, uh, at least in terms of the numbers that become a party to those treaties, uh, the figures easily outstrip those of environmental resource and arms control treaties. When we get to enforcement, then, uh, we encounter a major problem. So the enforcement of UN human rights obligations is porous and inconsistent, <coughs> and based on a haphazard system of shaming. There's no judicial scrutiny of breaches of human rights treaties, and we see constantly, the newspapers are full of it, uh, major violations of human rights commitments that go without apparent remedy. If we just uh, take two examples, we can think of Syria, which is a party to almost all the major human rights treaties, or indeed uh, Australia, uh, my country, a party to most of the international, the core treaties. And uh, uh, we can think of the major human rights abuses going on in Syria and in Australia, of course, uh, the systematic abuse of the human rights of asylum seekers is uh, a major blot on Australia's human rights record. So a question that has engaged, one might even say obsessed, scholars in a range of disciplines is, what causes the dissonance between the powerful language of human rights standards and their weak implementation? How can we explain it? Well, if you look generally at the law, at lawyers, how do lawyers explain it, they tend, understandably enough, to study the international human rights system primarily as a legal structure through its laws and institutions. So the idea for lawyers is we're dealing with a system of binding agreements and effectiveness is primarily associated with the law. So international lawyers considering these questions typically focus on institutions strengthening and tougher enforcement mechanisms. So we see calls, for example, to strengthen the UN human rights treaty bodies, um, which are cumbersome and inefficient in, in some ways. And another typical legal response to the problem of enforcement is ensuring compliance with decisions of regional and international human rights institutions. And a further example are, are calls that are quite popular uh, for a world human rights court. So that's one set of explanations for the dissonance between the fine words and the very 
bad picture of implementation. If we look then to international relations, uh, we can see perhaps realists in international relations might simply say that the gap between formal human rights commitments and their implementation is simply a product of state interests and power relations. On this analysis, countries comply with treaties only insofar as they deem them to be in their national interest or if they are coerced into doing so by more powerful states. Now, some international relations scholars have developed what they've called an expressive theory of treaty ratification, arguing that it's really uh, a low-cost method for states to express support for principles contained in treaties while avoiding any practical action. So uh, Yale scholar Una Hathaway, for example, has used statistical analysis to chart the relationship between treaty acceptance and state behaviour, and she actually finds very little correlation between the two. So variations on this sort of form of investigation include the claim that uh, treaty participation improves human rights practices in democracies, but not necessarily otherwise. And uh, another sort of tack on this is the, the, the major book by the US scholar Beth Simmons, uh, arguing that human rights treaties are primarily useful as a tool for civil society uh, to mobilise against human rights uh, abuses. But overall, I think, much of the treaty implementation literature shows that international human rights law is like a smoke detector that stops working whenever a fire gets really, really large. Well, tonight what I want to propose, what I want to do is to take another tack and consider the human rights system through the lenses of ritual and ritualism. So I should start off by first explaining uh, what I mean by those terms. Well, the concept of ritual has generated a vast literature and its custodians have mainly been anthropologists and sociologists. So I'm treading very, very warily when I deal with the um, area of ritual. But the, the legal anthropologist at, at now at Brighton, Marie Benedict Embour, uh, offers to me a very, very useful definition of ritual. And this is the one that, that, that she gave um, a conference uh, at the ANU earlier this year. She referred to ritual as a public orchestrated event that is intentional and rule-bound. So a public orchestrated event that is intentional and rule-bound. So the primary function of rituals is that of communication of a particular social order. But rituals also can shape and transform our experience. So the very famous anthropologist Mary Douglas put it this way. She says, and here's a quote from her, her, her major book, uh, Purity in Danger, ritual focuses attention by framing. It enlivens memory and links the present with the relevant past. So, says Mary Douglas, it's not enough to say that ritual helps us to experience more vividly what we would have experienced anyway. It can come first in formulating experience. And then we have uh, the great sociologist Emile Durkheim's very influential account of rituals that still shapes much of the literature today. Uh, he emphasised the way that rituals generate solidarity. They bring people together and they encourage common understandings of social, moral or political questions. So rituals can thus manifest the dominance of a way of thinking or of being. If we enshrine a practice as ritual, it reduces contestation. So in this sense, rituals can obscure alternative cultural or political orders 
by imposing a very particular logic on a situation. Now, another strand in ritualology, I, I, I've learnt there is this whole, uh, this whole vast literature, emphasises rituals as a more prosaic form of human engagement, helping make sense of the fractured and ambivalent nature of the world. One way that rituals do this, according to, to uh, a, a recent book authored by Adam Seligman and others, is by creating what he calls as-if or could-be worlds, creating what they call the rhythmic structure of the shared subjunctive. And I'm going to return to these ideas later. Well, an example of, of human rights rituals are those of transitional justice and of apology that mark a break between the old and the new and signal a society's recognition of certain wrongs as well as, as, well as its determination to move on. Such rituals can both establish and entrench a consensus about how society relates to its past. And th there are a lot of studies of human rights rituals in the sense of transitional justice, uh, one's particularly apology as well. Now, ritualism, uh, by contrast with ritual, is a term, term drawn from regulatory theory found in Robert Merton's classic sociological study of modes of adaptation to a normative order, which was published in 1968. Merton identified five modes of individual and collective adaptation to normative orders, and these were conformity, innovation, ritualism, retreatism, and rebellion. So I'm going to leave aside all the complexity of Merton's wonderfully rich analysis and just focus on ritualism. Ritualism can be defined, and here I'm borrowing the words of my, my ANU colleagues, uh, John and Valerie Braithwaite, They've defined ritualism as acceptance of institutionalised means for securing regulatory goals while losing all focus on achieving the goals or outcomes themselves. So accepting institutionalised means for securing regulatory goals while losing all focus on achieving goals or outcomes themselves. There's been some very, very fine studies of regulatory ritualism in various contexts including uh, ones that my colleagues at the ANU have done, uh, taxation and aged care. So, for example, in a three-country study, uh, John and Valerie Braithwaite and Tony Mackay found that nursing home operators really actively resisted regulation. Uh, it was much more common for operators to avoid confrontation with regulators and to agree to the language and techniques of regulation, for example, by changing a policy. So when it was discovered there was a problem in the way that uh, the level of the temperature of baths, uh, one never disagreed with the regulators. You always agreed to the regulation, um, perhaps by changing a policy. So that strategy usually favoured the preservation of the status quo, both because the new plans or policies were observed in a perfunctory way and because the regulators didn't have sophisticated follow-up mechanisms. So those ideas have been worked out in this very finely grained, sophisticated way in those, those contexts. Uh, and what I want to do is to think about, uh, in a much more broad brush way, uh, those ideas in the context of human rights. So what I want to do now is to turn to the Universal Periodic Review as a site to study the operation of rituals and ritualism in the international human rights system. So what is the Universal Periodic Review? Uh, this, uh, the Universal Periodic Review, is uh, really the main innovation of the UN Human Rights Council, 
which in turn is the only real product of Kofi Annan's ambitious reform agenda for the UN's 60th anniversary. So the need to have the Human Rights Council came from deep dissatisfaction with the UN's former engine room on human rights, the Commission on Human Rights, which comprised uh, 53 elected states. Both the Global North and the Global South had become, uh, by certainly uh, the turn of the century, to regard the Commission as deeply biased. For example, the United States was irritated by the Commission's constant criticism of human rights violations in the name of the war against terror, and many developing states resented the fact that the practices of Western countries generally escaped human rights scrutiny. There was a critical moment in 2001 uh, when the United States, that had been a constant member of the Commission, was not re-elected to the Commission, uh, but uh, Sudan was elected and then re-elected uh, three years later. And this, this sort of caused a bit of a crisis uh, about the Commission and the sense uh, that it wasn't doing its, its, its job. Well, after much debate about its design... And here's the, this, this is the General Assembly meeting when the uh, resolution uh, was adopted. Um, the commission was abolished and the Human Rights Council launched with much optimism. So the, the, the slogan of the Human Rights Council is cooperation rather than confrontation. So that's meant to mark a break with the old commission that was seen to be too confrontational and not cooperative enough. Well, a major... Uh, difference between the old commission and the Human Rights Council is a new procedure to monitor human rights, the Universal Periodic Review. And this is just a picture um, of, at that same vote, and it's got the United States delegation, and you'll probably all recognise John Bolton there, uh, who was very, very active in trying to shape uh, the uh, Human Rights Council, uh, ultimately not particularly successfully. But the, the Universal Periodic Review is a system to involve all the human rights scrutiny of all 193 UN members uh, on a cycle. Uh, the first cycle, it was every four years, so that meant 48 states were going to be reviewed every year. Uh, from the second cycle onwards, it's every four and a half years. Well, this has been quite a major step in human rights scrutiny, the idea that every state, every member of the UN would be systematically uh, scrutinised for uh, human rights on its human rights record. Uh, since the inception of the United Nations, human rights have been used by developed countries in particular as a vehicle for criticism of developing countries in the confidence that Western democracies had very few human rights problems. So the concept of a universal periodic review meant that human rights questions would be raised not just in relation to the usual suspects, such as Myanmar, Cuba, North Korea and Zimbabwe, but also in relation to self-styled gold-plated democracies, to use the word of Australia's uh, former Attorney-General, uh, such as Australia and the United States. In other words, the, the idea of the Universal Periodic Review was to undermine the sense that there are some countries with incorrigibly bad human rights records and some countries of impeccable human rights virtue. So I want to just now give you a brief sense, for those of you who don't know much about it, about how the Universal Periodic Review works. It's currently uh, midway through its second cycle. So uh, it's been established in the founding resolution of the Human Rights Council. Uh, and here's the uh, a Universal Periodic Review session with that wonderful, uh, rather 
fantastic uh, Spanish uh, ceiling. Um, and it says the resolution, the, the, the constitution, if you like, of the Universal Periodic Review is stated to be uh, the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, along with any human rights treaties to which the state being reviewed as a party and any voluntary commitments undertaken by that state in international uh, fora. So the UPR's purpose is stated to be an assessment of the human rights situation in a particular state, and here's the word from the resolution, in an objective, transparent, non-selective, constructive, non-confrontational and non-politicised manner. That's the, uh, that's the hope. Well, three, critic, three documents are really central to the way the UPR works. First of all, there's a national report by the state under review, and states are encouraged to consult with members of civil society in, in preparing that. Secondly, there's a compilation of existing treaty body reports and any relevant reports from special rapporteurs that's prepared by the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights. And the third critical document is a summary of what is termed in the resolution credible and reliable information received by the Office of the High Commissioner from what are termed other stakeholders, such as non-government organisations and so on. Now, these documents all have to... They, it's like sort of university essays. They are, have very, very strict word limits. So the state report um, that's required is just 20 pages long, uh, uh, the first compilation of human rights information is just 10 pages long, and the stakeholder summary similarly 10 pages long. So you can see you're straight away dealing with a very constrained, constricted uh, perspective on human rights. And there are also very, very strict time frames for preparation. Uh, three states that are members of the Human Rights Council are chosen by lottery to form what's called a troika, uh, to manage the universal periodic review for a particular state and to review the documents. Now, the most dramatic moment of the universal periodic review is not the document collection, obviously, but it's the interactive dialogue, the so-called interactive dialogue of the state under review, which is conducted in this room, um, at which the state presents its report and other states can question it and make recommendations. And this process, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's, it's, it's sort of quite a strange, formal dance. It's very, very precisely choreographed. Uh, so from the second cycle onwards, the dialogue must run exactly 3.5 hours. Um, some of them will end... In fact, the UK's second uh, review ended a bit earlier than expected. The state is given exactly 70 minutes in total for its report and its responses for questions. And uh, states with questions or recommendations uh, are allocated often really tiny amounts of time. Sometimes they're just one and a half minutes. And microphones are simply cut off if uh, a speaker exceeds their limits. So there's, there's so much timekeeping. It's a bit like an Olympic trial if you watch all the boards with the time running out and so on. Well, after this, this dialogue that takes place in a session like this, uh, the so-called Troika prepares a draft report, which is essentially just a transcription of all the recommendations made. There's really no analysis, and uh, it includes also any immediate responses by the state. Uh, and then the state that's been reviewed has a short period to consider those recommendations and respond to them. And then the final act in the drama is when a compilation of these documents is forwarded to the Human Rights Council as a whole... Uh, and this is formally, ex this is formally accepted uh, very, very carefully, avoiding endorsement. 
Uh, so it's only at this stage that civil society organisations can intervene in the process. So this is just this is taken from the webcast uh, of it, and you can see that it's um, uh, Kuwait engaging the so-called interactive dialogue of Uzbekistan. Uh, a very important feature of the process of the UPR process is that uh, all of the uh, proceedings of the UPR are webcast. And here's just another one. This is um, uh, China's uh, responding. Uh, to it's it's at the time of its the adoption of its its second report. Well, just to give some uh, slightly more detailed examples of this, to take Australia, uh, my own country, uh, we've only so far gone through the first cycle. Uh, we're due for our second cycle report next year, and. Uh, to try to see, well, has the universal periodic review system made much difference to the way uh, the government responds to human rights concern in Australia? Well, the government did prepare its 20-page report with some input from civil society as well as from the state and territorial governments. Um, it did, if you look at Australia's uh, first report, it's the most glowing self-assessment. It really sort of says it is a gold-plated democracy. But it was gracious enough to acknowledge there were just a few problems at the edges. For example, it acknowledged the lower life expectancy rates of Indigenous Australians and the fact that women's earnings are on average lower than men in Australia. But what the Universal Periodic Review did in Australia was to prompt some really excellent analysis by the Australian Human Rights Commission, uh, which pointed out uh, human rights issues that were completely ignored in Australia's official report, um, uh, particularly uh, <clears throat> the treatment of, of refugees, asylum seekers and prisoners in Australia. And a joint uh, NGO coalition in Australia also produced some um, very valuable background, and they also supplied questions for countries to ask Australia during its, its UPR. Now, Australia was obviously conscious it had to put its best foot forward during the UPR session, and it decided to start off, as many countries do, by making a number of human rights commitments. So it started off saying, we're going to do the following things. For example, it announced that it was going to appoint a full-time race discrimination commissioner, and so on. And then there was the interactive dialogue, and um, it was very striking from an Australian perspective to look at what other countries had picked up. So Australia was constantly clapped on the back. It was congratulated for Kevin Rudd's apology to Indigenous Australians. Um, there were expressions of concern over Australia's treatment of its Indigenous people, and there were pretty constant references to the rights of refugees and asylum seekers, the protection of children's rights, and encouraging withdrawal of Australia's reservations to human rights treaties. In the end, uh, the Human Rights Council, when it produced its report, it had 145 recommendations for Australia. And um, then Australia went back and considered those, tabled the report in Parliament and so on. Uh, but it, it did accept a number of the recommendations, but it also uh, rejected some with almost no explanation. It simply said, we're not going to accept those. So, for example, some of the uh, recommendations that Australia simply uh, just rejected was a call to enact uh, the Human Rights Act in Australia, uh, another call to compensate the stolen generations of Indigenous people, and a call to end mandatory detention of asylum seekers. And at that stage, Australia certainly didn't consult with civil society. 
Now, the UK provides quite an interesting contrast because it's gone through two cycles of the Universal Periodic Review. So the first time round, it was only it was the seventh state of 193 to be reviewed, so it was very, very early in the cycle. And uh, the UK announced uh, that it planned to set the standard uh, for UPR performances, and it um, uh, prepared its reporting consultation with civil society. Um, there was, I, I think at that stage, because it was so early on, uh, there wasn't a lot of engagement by uh, civil society in the UK, um, because I think uh, perhaps they were just becoming aware of the possibility of these mechanisms. And after the interactive process the first time round, there were only 28 recommendations made to the UK. They focused on the human rights implications of the UK's terrorism laws, the issue of children in detention, and the human rights obligations of armed, serv of armed forces serving abroad. Uh, there were some interesting ones. For example, Argentina used the Universal Periodic Review to make detailed comments on the Falkland Islands and the designation of British Antarctic Territory. And there was an interesting, uh, uh, slightly off-beam almost intervention by Sri Lanka, which recommended that there be a referendum held and these, were, these, these are the words of the recommendation, on the desirability or otherwise of a written constitution, preferably Republican, which includes a Bill of Rights. Um, so the UK accepted a large number of the 28 uh, recommendations but rejected some of the toughest or the weightiest ones. So, for example, it uh, rejected Switzerland's recommendation that it should consider any person detained by its armed forces as under its jurisdiction and thus the beneficiary of its human rights obligations. So the UK said it, 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 it accepted it should respect the human rights of detained persons, but it did not accept the stronger point, uh, later, of course, confirmed by the European Court of Human Rights in the Alskany decision, that persons detained by the UK armed forces were under its jurisdiction. Well, the UK's uh, second appearance at the UPR was in May uh, 2012. Uh, there were many, many more UK uh, NGOs who participated. And uh, again, the, the, the nature of the dialogue was much faster paced. Um, one of the focuses continued to be the counter-terrorism laws, uh, especially allowing the use of secret evidence. And there was also quite a bit of attention given to the issue of human rights in Northern Ireland. And this time round, the UK received 132 recommendations. Um, the UK, obviously keen to see itself as a very good human rights citizen, issued a, a mid-term report uh, earlier this, this year, in, in August. And reading that is quite an interesting document. Some parts of it are frank, but there have been a number of criticisms of the UK fudging some of the issues um, in its, its, its own midterm report, particularly on the issue of child poverty. So that's just to give you a bit of a snapshot of how these, these things work out. What I want to do now is to consider what type of ritual the Universal Periodic Review is and how human rights ritualism operates at the international level. So to go first to the idea of, of ritual. Sorry, I've, this is... I should have... I skipped the overheads. This is during... This is Australia's... The, the Minister, Senator Lundy, who came to present Australia's report in 2011, uh, flanked by... Some of you will know Anne-Marie Devereaux, a very well-known human rights lawyer who is on the government delegation. And this is the Australian NGO delegation. And I could, this is the only picture I could find of the UK... 
um, UPR itself, which is obviously near the end with the um, cameras being set up. Well, the Universal Periodic Review, I think, fits quite readily with Marie Benedict Dembourg's definition of ritual, a public orchestrated event that is intentional and rule-bound. I think the UPR certainly fills those criteria. The process is replete with ritual, including the cyclical nature of the process and its elaborate calendar of events. The process itself is intricately managed and formalised, manifested, for example, in the very formulaic structure and style of the UPR documents. The concept of interactive dialogue that sounds a bit exciting is reduced into the sometimes the often deadening reality of extended formal introductions and rigorously observed time constraints. There's the elaborate etiquette of congratulation as well as rituals of condemnation. There is in this space absolutely no possibility of discussion of the root causes of human rights violations, a point that Susan Marks has made powerfully with respect to the human rights system generally. So one rationale, I think, for the UPR ritual is the performance of universal application of human rights norms. So much was made of the fact in all the UN literature on this uh, that all 193 UN members participated in the first cycle even if the rules had to be stretched, for example, to accommodate South Africa's failure to observe the relevant timelines for documentation. There was such eagerness to show this was truly universal. When universality has been under direct threat, for example, when Israel announced that it would not participate in its second UPR in January 2013 because of what it called anti-Israel bias in the council, and this is just a picture of the Israeli delegation, uh, considerable diplomatic energy was devoted to bringing Israel back into the UPR fold. Israel's review, and this was historic, was postponed, and there were months of so-called dialogue with Israel, including intervention by the Secretary-General himself. So some states in the Human Rights Council pushed for a formal statement of condemnation of Israel for refusing to cooperate, This wasn't successful, but the Council took the relatively strong step of adopting a resolution critical of Israel by consensus rather than by vote. In the end, uh, Israel's delayed UPR session took place in October last year. Um, 80 states registered to participate, which left them with 1.4 minutes each. Uh, There were 237 recommendations made, uh, and in the end Israel rejected 132 of them. And then, in an interesting move, Israel failed to attend the formal adoption of the report earlier this year, citing a labour strike in its foreign ministry. Uh, it asked for the, uh, that uh, ceremony to be delayed indefinitely, but the, uh, the council refused to do so. So that's just one way that the ritual of universality is, is demonstrated. The fiction of the equality of states is also reinforced through the ritual of the Universal Periodic Review. It reproduces an image of a body of sovereign equal nations deliberating together, much as in this picture, despite obvious inequalities. For example, the strict time limits for each review, whether it be China with its population of 1.3 billion or of Nauru with its population of 10,000, If you have equal time limits, equal documentation limits, this creates a sense of equality between states in terms of human rights scrutiny, but it obviously lets many states off the hook. Now, the rituals of human rights uh, can be enriching. They can also be limiting. 
So all parties have to conform to the requirements of the process in order to secure their participation. And as Gerd Oberleitner has noted, uh, the concerns of human rights, upholding human dignity, protecting the vulnerable, empowering the powerless, remedying wrongdoing, are translated very readily into processes and procedures. So uh, this means that who has access to the global system is quite limited. So, for example, uh, if NGOs are going to be heard in the Human Rights Council, they have to have consultative status uh, or they won't get access to the conference hall. So this obsession with process can seem to prioritise means over ends and obscure the often shocking realities of human rights abuse. Uh, What's striking also about the ritual of the UPR is that the so-called peer review, the state-run peer review process, is really much less comprehensive than the expert review system of the human rights treaty bodies. Indeed, what's very interesting, an increasing pattern, is that some countries invoke the universal periodic review uh, to resist the often sharper criticisms of the expert treaty body, saying we'll take uh, these criticisms by our peers more seriously uh, mainly because they're much duller and less pointed than the, the, the uh, more targeted criticisms of the human rights treaty bodies. Now, a number of scholars, and uh, at least two of the very distinguished ones are, are here in London, Stephen Hopgood and Costas Tuzinas, have focused on the rituals of the human rights system and interpreted these as evidence of emptiness and ossification. I think while there's some truth in those analyses, uh, we should also observe that the UPR ritual clearly clearly carries some weight for the country under scrutiny. So the very fact that the Universal Periodic Review involves states reviewing other states, uh, and this term that we know so well in the academy, peer review, I think it's constantly, if incongruously, used in this context, it means that it's taken much, much more seriously at the governmental level than review by the UN treaty bodies, which are made up of independent experts. It's also striking, for example, in the first cycle that 80% of delegations were headed by a government minister. And if you compare the uh, makeup of delegations to the treaty bodies, you see that generally they're at a much, much lower level. Another sign of the bite of the Universal Periodic Review is the very strong resistance by a number of countries to the fact that it's webcast, uh, which signals that there's, it's having some success. Indeed, China closed down the internet in China at the time of its per, first UPR uh, appearance. So my point is that taking rituals seriously allows us not only to observe the way that power operates in human rights fora, but also the ability of ritual to capture the participants, to bring them along with it. To turn then to ritualism... Uh, The Universal Periodic Review has also been a very fertile site for human rights ritualism. So adapting the Braithwaite definition, uh, it has become in some contexts a technique of embracing the language of human rights while deflecting human rights scrutiny and avoiding accountability for human rights abuses. So if I speak of Universal Periodic Review ritualism, I mean participation in the process of reports and meetings but an indifference to or even reluctance about increasing the protection of human rights. So as a state-run system of scrutiny, the Universal Periodic Review is affected by regional and global alliances uh, that easily support and sustain ritualism. Um, So one example is the way that, in the first cycle at least, 
the so-called interactive dialogue with a country being reviewed could be manipulated by stacking the speakers list with friendly countries, preventing effectively any tough questions being asked. And there were some really wonderful stories of the politics of the speakers list, which in the first round was conducted on a first-come, first-serve basis. So hapless third secretaries to Geneva missions were required on occasions to sleep overnight in their cars to ensure that their country would be high on the speaker's list. Um, And there are some stories of countries inviting friendly countries to arrive early to make sure they're on the speaker's list by providing breakfast in the car park, in the case of one country, or even rum in one case, you can perhaps guess which country that is, and vodka in another. Um, So get them there early, stack the speaker's list, and then you have a very, very easy ride. So the effect of the stacking is evident in the very gentle scrutiny some countries, such as China, uh, received, a technique that's been described as a filibuster of praise. Well, that technique to evade scrutiny was remedied in the second cycle. However, uh, the net effect is that any state who wants to speak now uh, can speak. It means that the time available is simply divided by the number of states that wish to speak. Uh, And this sometimes reduces the... just gives you time to stand up and say hello and then it's time to sit down again. Um, Other forms of ritualism that we see in the UPR include the fact that overall we find very, very little self-criticism in the country reports. And um, some countries simply ignore well-documented issues. Uh, This would be Australia with respect to the rights of asylum seekers and South Africa's refusal to refer to HIV-AIDS as a human rights issue. And also there were many, many examples in the reports where the plea of special circumstances was made to justify departures from human rights principles. So, for example, the UK relied on the threat of terrorism to explain restrictions on the right to a fair trial. Uh, The broad nature of many of the recommendations made by other states uh, also really supports uh, ritualism. So to take one example, in the first cycle, Egypt recommended that the UK enhance programs aimed at addressing socio-economic inequalities from a human rights perspective in accordance with its obligations under the Economic, Social and Cultural Rights Covenant. Well, the UK rather gratefully accepted this recommendation uh, and informed the Human Rights Council that it was currently being implemented and was under review. However, uh, in later documents, it became clear that the United Kingdom was referring only to the area of social security. Uh, This emerged when it gave itself a perfect score on compliance with the relevant provision in the Covenant and an ILO Convention on Social Security. So uh, it was easy for the UK to make that move because of the broad language of the Egyptian recommendation. A further technique of ritualism that we see in the Universal Periodic Review is the formal acceptance of recommendations, even if the intention is to reject it. So a nice example of this is the United Kingdom's acceptance of Russia's recommendation in the first round that it consider removing the UK reservations to the optional protocol to the Covenant on the Rights of the Child um, uh, with respect to children in armed conflict. So the effect of the UK reservation is to allow 16- and 17-year-olds in the armed forces to take part in direct hostilities. And in an extraordinary and ultra-legalistic response, um, the UK accepted that recommendation from Russia because it said it didn't have a reservation, it had a declaration. Um, So that was was really a a very finely tuned response. Uh, Another popular method that's developed in the Universal Periodic Review of deflecting human rights scrutiny 
is deployment of government organised, non-government organisations or GONGOs, um, which then monopolise the NGO speaking slots. So this happened very, very effectively in the universal periodic reviews of both China and Cuba. Well, the Human Rights Council does have an NGO coordinator who reviews the credentials of NGOs, but there have been claims that some states intimidate this office to allow gongos to speak and exclude independent NGOs. I think we can also see, uh, looking at the practice of the Universal Periodic Review, um, different regional approaches to ritualism. So African states and members of the Organisation of Islamic Cooperation typically focus on changing procedures to reduce human rights scrutiny. For example, arguing for longer um, uh, universal periodic review cycles to reduce the, the amount of scrutiny they have. But members of the Western group, uh, by contrast, tend to deflect recommendations by saying simply, we do this already, invoking their self-images as gold-plated human rights protectors. So I've argued tonight that the Universal Periodic Review is a rich site for both rituals and ritualism. And I want now to consider what the relationship is between those practices. What is the relationship between rituals and ritualism? And I want to really conclude by suggesting that, that rituals could have a role in countering ritualism. So in making that argument, I, I draw on the work I cited earlier by Adam Seligman and others that sees rituals as creating as-if or could-be worlds, generating, um, this is their phrase, the rhythmic structure of the shared subjunctive. So they make the point that sincerity is not critical to this exercise. So we can understand the rituals of the Universal Periodic Review as requiring states to act as if they take their human rights commitments seriously and also, of course, as if they were political peers with other states in the process. Countries clearly do care about the process and how they're going to emerge from it. So there seems to be some power inherent in the performative moment itself. This may not be enough to induce major efforts compliance, but it is at least enough to desire a positive performance. So we've seen that UPR rituals sometimes constrain debate on human rights, but at the more positive level, they also prompt occasions of debate and critique. This creates some space, even if fleeting, for moral reflection and pressure. Toby Kelly has pointed out that the civility of the ritual allows conversations on topics of human brutality that would be otherwise impossible to discuss, and that's what rituals um, give the space for. I think the UPR rituals also support the belief that struggles of human rights are more than just a series of localised conflicts. So civil society in the form of national human rights institutions and NGOs plays a vital role in the UPR. And this is just a picture from the lounge in the Palais des Nations of a, a group, the NGO UPR coalition from the Philippines, and there's another one, I think, sitting almost at the same table, um, uh, a group from a Tibet organisation uh, in relation to the UPR of China. But uh, really, a lot of weight, I mean, to make rituals sort of worthwhile lies on civil society. So I think civil society can help construct and maintain the as-if world of commitments to human rights standards. 
in this sense, civil society can be empowered by a country's treaty ratification, even if the state itself fails to implement it. And there's some very interesting work, uh, uh, some work on, for example, the use of Egyptian NGOs' use of the UPR, which has fostered sustained human rights activity both inside Egypt and at the regional level. And then, interestingly, many of the questions asked of Egypt uh, at its UPR were based on information provided by Egyptian NGOs. So what's interesting about the UPR, which makes it, I think, a powerful ritual, is because of its nature, its state-on-state review and the participation of state officials. So it's really difficult for authoritarian governments to dismiss it simply as somehow illegitimate. Uh, And uh, both in Egypt, as I say, I think in Australia and the UK, uh, civil society have used these ritual forms of the UPR very productively. Uh, Another sort of counterweight to uh, ritualism comes from some of the work of the staff, the bureaucrats in the Office of the High Commission for Human Rights. Uh, And there's some nice work describing, for example, in the context of NGO uh, registration, even though some authoritarian states have have pressured the Human Rights Commission NGO coordinators, I've mentioned, uh, to register uh, gongos and not to register NGOs. Um, It's very interesting there have been practices of resistance to that and quite skillful use of the process by bureaucrats inside the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. And there's sometimes also evidence that um, other states themselves uh, bring pressure on states uh, to curb the undermining of the Universal Periodic Review. So it was quite interesting in the very, very early days, both uh, Egypt and Algeria led a campaign to curtail and disrupt the UPR, making constant points of order and demanding that all NGO comments be removed from official records. And the reasons they eventually sort of gave up on that uh, was both because of media campaigns and also because of formal and informal pressure from other states. So then to conclude, unlike the broad brush accounts of the implementation of human rights treaties offered by some international law and international relations (coughs) scholars, What I'm proposing is that paying attention to human rights rituals and human rights ritualism allows us to develop a much finer-grained analysis of how the international human rights system actually works. I hope um, that uh, you can see from this account of the UPR that the system is certainly highly politicised, but also that that's not the full or the only story. In fits and starts... I think, it's capable of being mobilised to improve the protection of human rights. But the constant challenge remains to harness the transformative potential of human rights rituals to undermine the deleterious effect of human rights ritualism. as a basis of ritualism, but also as a way of countering ritualism. Performing universality and equality uh, as a way of making uh, those real, as opposed to purely in the realm of the subjunctive or the as-if. That's the thesis we're being invited to consider. Professor Charlesworth has very kindly offered to respond to your comments and questions. We have uh, some time now, so who would like to begin our discussion? Yes. 
Thank you very much. Wonderful lecture. I have a very good friend of mine, uh, Richard Hanser, who ran something called Institute of Human Rights Responsibilities and travelled the world promoting human rights uh, throughout the world. And I'm just asking you, uh, human rights uh, that will, and responsibilities, that's the second concept, which um, I wonder what you might think of the concept of responsibilities in terms of human rights law as well as the rights themselves. Great. Um, human rights responsibilities. Uh, we might take a few questions and group them. The gentleman in the corner. Yes. Uh, thank you. That was a very, very interesting talk. Uh, it strikes me that uh, in the UK we've got uh, an experience of rituals in uh, parliamentary questions and letters from members of parliament to ministers and the replies. But like the international human rights context, one of the values is often yeah. having, a, having a country put its uh, ideals on paper and then being judged by that. How much can the system be used to record facts? In other words, how many beheadings in Saudi Arabia last year? Is, is that something that can ever be made to feature? Great. Um, maybe, Hilary, would you like to respond to those first? And then, could you signal to me if you've got questions on creative list? Okay. Thanks. Thanks for those questions. Uh, to turn first to the question of responsibilities, and that that is often grouped. You're quite right with human rights. Indeed, the state of Victorian Australia has adopted the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities, including it. I must say, I, I have this uh, big question mark about the term because, of course, human rights do imply responsibilities, but at least in at in Australia, uh, the idea of always coupling responsibilities with human rights is there is a sense that human rights only belong to people who deserve them. So if you have human rights, you've also got responsibilities, and it's only if you fully perform your responsibilities that you're worthy of human rights. And uh, uh, I've always... I think that's misunderstanding the, the radical... Yeah. Uh, aspect of of human rights. So, so I'm I, I sort of. I guess I'm. Cons it's not to deny that there's a role there, but uh, as I say, in political parlance, the the linkage often is one of saying, well, human rights are a great luxury. So, if you're very virtuous, you can claim them. But if you've done something dodgy, just forget about them. So, so, so that's that's my hesitation about linking the term. Uh, and the second question, how can the system, can the system actually record facts? I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. And in the, um, the, the to and fro that I was describing, the country report, uh, the summary of credible uh, uh, information and so on, if, if you look at those for a particular country they offer such a limited snapshot of what's going on. They've got the very, very strict word limits and uh, they, there are some that bear little resemblance to what's really going on in the country. Usually the most uh, valuable document is the compilation of uh, that's prepared by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights that will sometimes uh, give 
sort of facts, as, as, as you call them, but they're often very hotly contested. contested. So it's certainly not a... Um, you wouldn't look at the UPR documents as the go-to summary of the state of human rights in any particular country. They're rich and interesting documents, but they only incidentally or perhaps accidentally uh, contain some of those very basic, those very basic issues. Ralph. Thank you very much for um, uh, such a um, thought-provoking presentation. Um, presumably, uh, scholars of uh, rituals and ritualism, uh, some of whom you mention, um, apply their ideas across the board. And so uh, my, my immediate thought was, is, is everything, can we understand not just human rights institutions and UPR in particular, but international legal institutions generally and international organisations in this way, presumably the analysis is transferable. Um, and more profoundly, though, is it transferable to the notion of international law itself? Uh, so not only, as it were, institutional mechanisms that are concerned with the notion of um, performing uh, commitment, but the notion of commitment itself has been formulated through a process of performance, for example, the way that we understand how customary international law is formed. Could it be illuminating in, in the way we understand the very idea of normativity itself, as well as how we understand the way the mechanisms that scrutinise uh, the application and enforcement of that normativity, how they operate. Thanks. And then uh, four of there in the room Thank you. Thanks, Hilary. Um, listening to you talk about the ritualization of these institutions and, and the processes that take place within them and the ways that that this, um, the focus on the ritual, the, the, the formal process, dif distracts from or, or even obfuscates the, the, the ultimate goals that drive this process originally, an interest in improving human rights and so on, reminds me a lot of the, um, some of the early critical legal studies critiques of, of rights discourse, people like Mark Tufton and Peter Gable, and the ways that uh, falling back into a discourse of rights on their view, inherently um, distracts from or, or, or deflects attention from the, the ultimate needs, various ways that one might put it. Uh, but but uh, we focus on the demand for rights rather than the demand to have our needs satisfied. Uh, and I wonder if, if you see these processes here as being related to this more general issue of rights, or on the other hand, the broader sort of institutions more generally, and whether we see these same rituals, regardless of whether it's a human rights, uh, but in other institutional aspects of, of international organizations. Um, so, so in either direction, whether there's, what's the broader context of this? Um, we can take another one. Uh, yes, uh, at the back.
Yeah, thanks so much. Um, I was just wondering if you could comment a little more on your first slide showing the uh, massive universal ratification almost of a lot of these UN conventions. If you might comment a little further on whether or not you see um, really high turnout of authoritarian states, uh, rights-abusing states, as state parties to these conventions to be generally a good thing down the road. Um, I take, for example, the uh, criticism that allowing the Saudis to ratify the CEDAW, the Women's Convention, might make a laughingstock of the UN or the convention, but there's the other argument. It could help um, in nuanced ways, mobilize civic actors, and so forth. If you could comment whether or not more state parties and more conventions is generally a good thing. Thank you. Uh, well, they're all great questions. Um, Ralph, I mean, there's some overlap, I think, with your and Tor's question perhaps there, um, is the analysis transferable and does it apply to international law itself? I mean, I think the analysis is transferable and, of course, anthropologists have been doing this for a long time and um, pointing out the ritualised aspects of law sort of generally and there's, there's a lot of rich sort of writing there and it's, it's interesting that it's perhaps just in the last decade that they've really uh, begun to turn their attention to the arenas of international law. So you've got people like Sally Engelmary, uh, Toby Kelly, Jane Cowan. I mean, there are a number of people who are, I think, doing fantastic work in, 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 in this area. All of those people have... Toby Kelly's work, of course, is on the Committee Against Torture, and I really recommend his book, which is a wonderful example of that. Um, Jane Cowan has done some fantastic work on the UPR and also on the League of Nations. I mean, so there's... Um, I'm not aware of... But that's perhaps because I just my reading isn't broad enough of... I mean, it would make good sense in the context, you could imagine, in development of environmental fora and so on, where, where you would see this. It does apply to international law itself. I, I think it does. I mean, I think your questions... I, I, uh, I'll think a lot... I'll think more about it, but I think one could see uh, it's 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 a highly ritualized space, and the idea of repetition, for example, that's central to the formation of custom, which is also central to the idea of ritual, how ritual gains its power. Uh, I think there's some very rich thoughts there that I'm probably can't just sort out right now. <laughs> but thank you for that. Um, Yes, you, you also raised an interesting point about how it relates to some of the very early work in the 1980s, the early 1980s of from critical legal studies. I, I guess I would just say, I mean, the distinction I would draw is that um, I guess unlike some of the of those writings which are saying, you know, beware of rights language and it's always a carapace for some bad move, some bad political move, and you know, you, you're given rights when you can't be given anything else. Uh, I, I guess I was I, trying to say something a little different, which is how uh, you know, being drawn up in the Performance of human rights becomes performative, and it's this quite interesting thing. And I guess it's the ways, uh, not different to some of the things that Judith Butler says about the performance of gender. I think there are some links there that, after the continuous 
performance of gender becomes performative. This actually creates something. And uh, I'm interested in the way that the performance of human rights in sometimes empty ways can become performative. Can it? So, so I guess that's where I distinguish a bit myself from that, from that, uh, from those, from those scholars. Uh, and then the, the challenging question uh, on ratification of human rights treaties: uh, is it good or bad inside the tent, outside the tent? I guess the argument to support ratification is that it does of treaties is that countries then are going to have a moment of scrutiny through the treaty body system and the theory is that they will be shamed into doing something. Of course, countries often get out of the shaming by putting in very broad reservations uh, that then buys them a certain immunity uh, from particular issues. Uh, this, This has been a big debate in my part of the world about because there's a very, very low ratification. Apparently the lowest region for ratification is the Pacific, interestingly. And uh, there's always been a lot of debate, you know, is it a good thing for countries like Australia to put a lot of funds into going around the Pacific saying, dear countries of the Pacific, sign up to these human rights treaties? Is that delivering anything? Is just the ratification? Uh, and uh, of course the argument against it is that it can become pretty pretty empty. The reason I think too that it is valuable, I guess I come down the side of value, is what I was uh, pointing to in the lecture, which is the value that this can provide for civil society, so that it can at least be uh, an international commitment, even made sometimes close to bad faith, in close to bad faith, can nevertheless be used by civil society to hold a state's sort of feet to the fire in a, in, in a certain sense. So I guess for that reason I would probably come down on the, on the ratification side. There was a question uh, at the back, uh, young lady in the grey top. Um, thank you very much for a really fascinating talk. Um, I have two and I'll, questions and I'll keep them very brief. Um, first of all, regarding the rule boundedness and orchestration dimension of rituals, um, I was curious if you could speak a little more to the um, kind of moments of resistance or contestation that that you um, mentioned in passing, and if in your analysis this validates or consolidates um, the rituals, um, if these are rare and um, you know in occasional moments only, or if it undermines or possibly fragments um, the established rituals. And then the second question. Um, regards um, the publicity, visibility or transparency of the rituals and ritualism um, because as you mentioned obviously there you know, are uh, mechanisms of transparency, um, the webcasting as you mentioned um, but obviously there are non-public spaces, the Human Rights Council um, operates also um, in or performs um, some of its um, kind of practices um, in non-public um, spaces so I was curious about kind of the interlinkage of the public spaces and non-public spaces and how that kind of redefines rituals possibly. Thank you. And then uh, Bernard. Uh, Um, I suppose my question is really um, what 
what, it, what, it, what is the work that, that referring to ritual does here, um, as opposed to talking about proceduralism or um, making a comparison to, say, audit culture or something like that, which you know, are sort of self-described technical systems that, that have their own rationality. And I guess, um, more specifically, I mean, who is it that is doing these, performing these rituals? Is it, um, is it civil servants? Is it elected ministers? Or is it a bunch of interns? You know, what, what, are, they, what are people actually enacting when they speak as if they are states? Um, and what, what are the sort of materialities of the process? And is, is that relevant? Because it was just in the presentation, um, it seemed to switch between talking about what delegates were doing, so these great little insights into what happens in the car park and, you know, and how do you line up your friends to come in and speak, um, and then talking about uh, sort of self-description of a normative state, improving its record. And it seems, I, I'm just curious about the epistemology of that. So where is the, where is the ritual and, and the material of that um, in, your, in, your, uh, in your view? Yes. There are loads more questions, but I'm going to actually jump in now myself very briefly uh, to ask uh, about this idea, of, which I find really intriguing, of rituals countering ritualism, the notion of as-if worlds. And, and you just said uh, performance creates something. So what I'm interested in is the something that it creates. Uh, we know that performance, or I'm reminded that performance has uh, a lexical core that... Uh, brings it into um, connection with the word formality. They both have the word form in the middle. So acting as if there is equality could bring about equality, or it could simply reinforce formal equality that masks real inequality. We know, of course, that there is another literature, the literature on ideology, which particularly in the hands of Slavoj Žižek precisely defines ideology as acting as if uh, the world is as uh, we're encouraged to see it in formal terms or, or to put it differently acting as if uh, form brings with it uh, substantive change and of course he's, actually, he's precisely challenging that or using the concept of ideology as a critical tool to make us see that by acting as if formal equality uh, uh, is real equality, is simply to perpetuate real inequality. So um, that's a, a roundabout way of, of saying that I'm intrigued by the idea that rituals could counter ritualism, uh, but I wonder if they could also point in the opposite direction and simply reinforce uh, the formalism of human rights uh, processes. Great. Um, just to start with that question, Susan. Yes, I think um, I think absolutely. Um, I, I and I don't think that uh, I don't think rituals are always, uh, as it were, sort of. I'm trying to think of the right image, sort of uh, successfully create the world that they are setting out to do. And I think, I think very often they can simply reinforce formalism. So I didn't really address that very fully in what I said, but I, uh, I would absolutely recognise that it's, it's, it's often quite... It's a really fine balance. And, in fact, I think rituals can do both at the same time. So... Uh, uh, that links with 
the first question about perhaps about the the moments of resistance. What are they? Uh, and most of them, I suppose, that I was referring to are sort of where what a state has said at this very state-focused event. I mean, and, and one of the things, of course, and again, I, I didn't really have time to develop this, but, uh, of course, the fact that it's a state... Uh, a state ritual means that you're, you're also... One of the things that's being performed is the idea that the state is responsible for human rights protection. That that's where you need to look. So it's straight away excluding a whole lot of other questions about, well, uh, uh, as B.S. Chimney said at the conference that you were at, Susan, in, in Canberra, well, it would be impossible to hear the word capitalism mentioned, for example. I mean, this is, that's just not something that's going to be mentioned in this forum. So, so to you... You're performing a lot of limitations on the, uh, in terms of human rights anyway, and who's responsible for them? Uh, what about the idea that human rights might be a global responsibility? That's also sort of pushed out of the frame because it's very much also based on the idea of national responsibility. So there are there are a whole lot of limitations there that I I, I just um, didn't uh, didn't tease out. But the moments of resistance that emerge have been where. Uh, civil society, where NGOs, and particularly national human rights institutions. In the case of the UK, I've been very struck, and of course I'm only, I've been looking at this on paper, but at the, the critiques put forward by the three relevant national human rights institutions here, uh, which have been very, I think, of excellent quality and have really just sort of gone back and constantly sort of pinpointed the issues that that, that needed raising. So I think that's that's where a lot of the resistance comes from. Um, you're absolutely correct that there is the, this word transparency, which is such a problematic and difficult word, I think. I mean, what does it mean? And usually when it's used, you know, well, at least at my university, whenever the vice-chancellor assures us something's going to be done in a transparent manner, you just know almost automatically to expect something close to the opposite. Uh, but uh, what is it? And of course, this, this, is, this is very much sold itself at the UPR, and it's in the founding resolution. This is a transparent process. And the webcasting has turned out to be very, very powerful. I think much more powerful than people perhaps even expected. But of course, some of the critical things take place far from anywhere. And uh, uh, Really interesting work done by anthropologists from Sussex, um, Jane Cowan and Julie Biot, who've done a wonderful study of the UPR. They've, I mean, you can see bits of it published in articles and they're, they're coming up with a book on it. But some of the work Julie Biot um, did, she actually went as an intern to the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights working on the UPR and then has written some wonderful stuff reporting on that. And what you get out of this insider's account of what's going on inside the office is the extraordinary, even though the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights is presented as essentially a bureaucratic function, basically obeying sort of the states, uh, the incredible role that, that individuals play there. And she sets out some of the techniques used by people inside uh, the office where they feel, look, this is just wrong, or they work out ways of getting around 
the instructions they've been given by the Troika and so on. So they're really interesting pockets of resistance that are uh, coming there, and she demonstrates that really, really nicely. So it's true, there is a, a lot of the really important stuff uh, takes place absolutely behind uh, closed doors. So the generation, the stakeholder report, for example, is is absolutely something that's negotiated very, very quietly. Um, the work, uh, your your question, well, what what work is is ritual actually doing here? Um, uh, I I I think I, I don't think I can give a really complete or satisfactory answer. I think I see I think I see where the question is coming from and I'm sort of conscious in a way that um, I came at this originally through the project that was sort of this is part of really started out just looking at ritualism as a phenomenon and then it was really because it the ANU, we've got some fantastic anthropologists who would say to me they were really annoyed by the use of this term ritualism because they felt it was grabbing their beloved word ritual and turning into something sort of terrible and normative and the wrong and the wrong things. So the idea, of course, ritual is neither good nor bad. I mean, it's just, it's a, uh, they would say, and what I've been trying to do is to think of a way of whether those two concepts, whether there are any linkages and whether they can be made. But I think you put your finger on uh, in instability at the core of this, which is moving from the observation to the normative position. So I don't really I acknowledge that and uh, I, don't, uh, I don't have a clear rationale for it. We just have one more brief round because there were many hands up before. Yes. <coughs> we're nearly out of time. So. Yes. Thanks for that most intriguing presentation. My issues are the question you mentioned of a new, a call for a new human rights court for the world. And in my, my interest in this is that you mentioned structural ideals and uh, a reform agenda. But in terms of power relations internationally and the, the, the question of compliance, and for instance, in terms of the war on terror and the problem of Israel, Gaza, and you mentioned also the, the, the US and the UK's um, abundance of ignoring certain issues that happen not to comply with their self-interest generally. What is your take on the fact, how do you think that this new structure, will, the new institutions, in terms of its effectiveness, will it ever uh, reform the current system we have, or will it make a real difference in terms of restructuring world order? Thank you. Back. Yes, uh, hello. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Um, as the, It's a ritual rather than um, a uh, theater in the sense that I, I was there for two sessions, and that was my conclusion after two sessions. This is theater. Actually, I think a ritual is a much better uh, way to look at it. 
Um, my question, I have a lot of questions, but briefly, um, I would like to ask what role do you see of the new High Commissioner? You said the OHEHR is a, a pocket of resistance, uh, and there's a constant tension between what the states want the OHEHR to do and what the OHEHR tries to do. Um, and since the new High Commissioner is a, he's a career diplomat, uh, he's a prince, which I find kind of weird for uh, this role. Um, so yeah, basically, uh, I wonder what, what your take on this was. I think we might leave it at that. Okay, well, thank, thank you for those questions. I mean, with respect to the first one, will Canada ever really make a, a real difference? Uh, uh, of course, it, uh, what, what is a real difference? Uh, how, how do we define that? And um, I think that the, some of the human rights issues that you referred to is a process like this ever going to fundamentally change them? I don't think so. But I think it can be an adjunct. But I think that this is not... An, I don't think... Law is not going to change those things either. It's going to be a fundamental change in political will. So I think these these systems can act as pressure points, uh, nudging, but I, I, I don't think that they will... I think they're... It's... it's it's very difficult to change those really deep-seated, long-lasting human rights issues without something more fundamental. So I don't. I think it's just expecting too much of the system to think it's really going to deliver uh, change at that way. And the role for the new High Commissioner. I mean, it's it's interesting. Uh, obviously, it's it, it is a very important role, and the previous everybody looks at the high commissioner ever since the office was established to sort of see are they independent there's always this nice balance between how independent how outspoken can you be and then how effective you can be how many states you have to bring along with you and if you're seen as confrontational you're immediately some states will immediately stop listening to you uh, we saw the previous high commissioner navi pile being very outspoken on a number of of, of, of issues, but I think she uh, she she also uh, I think was was extremely effective. I think that um, the it's it's at least from an Australian perspective, I was struck that the High Commissioner singled out Australia in his first speech and criticised. Australia's human rights records, particularly with respect to refugees and asylum seekers. This then got quite a bit of publicity in Australia and the government sort of had to make a statement about it. So I was, uh, I was pleased that there was this sort of form of, of external pressure uh, on, on, on Australia. So it's, it's, I guess, maintaining the independence of the office is a really critical thing, and that, that won't be evident for a while. I, I don't want to suggest... I don't think the, the, the work that's available shows that it's, it's a hotbed of resistance. I don't think the Office of the High Commissioner really is a hotbed of... But I think there are... Certainly there are pockets where they're able to use their discretion in some ways extremely effectively, and I think it's understudied, as it were, by by human rights lawyers. But I, I guess if I had to name one task, it would be the 
the uh, giving of courage uh, to the members of the office, I think. Well, this has been a marvellously illuminating and thought-provoking presentation and then discussion on why we need to take rituals and ritualism seriously in the international human rights system and what it might mean to do so. Please join me in thanking our speaker. Thank you.